BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time of the Ben Jarofsky Show as I speak. It is Friday, December 15th, 2023. Uh, the topic we're going to be discussing today, as you could see, because, you know, I always think, oh, it's like, not a mystery topic that people can read. So when they <laughs> go to the podcast site, they see what the topic is. They know what the topic is. Uh, uh, is uh, a very grim and important topic. Uh, so I'll try to get the levity out of the way up front. Uh, thank goodness for the city of Chicago. We'll always provide a little levity uh, to uh, the world, uh, everything that's going on around us. Uh, it, so I'm t- uh, talking about this article that was in the uh, my beloved bright one, the Chicago Sun-Times, home delivered every day, uh, about Alderman Ed Burke's trial. And it was closing argument time uh, by the defense attorney. We're taking a much deeper dive on this topic uh, in future shows. Rachel Hinton will be coming on. Well, you already heard it if you're hearing this. Anyway, uh, neither here nor there. The part that made me smile and just shake my head. Uh, can- <laughs> oh, Chicago, you know, I love you. I love all all parts of you, Chicago. You know, I could have lived anywhere in Chicago, and I chose to live here. Okay, think about that. So uh, the two reporters, uh, John Seidel and uh, Maria uh, Wolfel, are explaining uh, <laughs> what uh, the, they're, they're uh, capturing what the uh, defense attorney said on behalf of Ed Burke. Uh, and uh, at the end, the um, the attorney made uh, reference to the TIF program, and I've dedicated all probably 30 years of my life trying to explain to a reluctant city of Chicago what a TIF is, how it works, how it imp- impacts their property taxes, how it impacts their schools, et cetera, and so forth. And getting a Chicagoan to understand what a TIF is like, it's like getting a five-year-old to eat his broccoli. You come on, Chicago. You could do it. How about if I put a little cheese on this? It'll taste good. You know, I'll give you some chocolate at the end. All right. <laughs> if that didn't help the other reporters in Chicago. Oh, my goodness. This is a sentence. So Duffy, the attorney, makes reference to the TIF program because, of course, everybody knows what a TIF is. All right. In the city of Chicago. But the Sun-Times, they're not quite sure. So they wrote, they go, uh, Duffy, 
uh, made reference to one of two different public initiatives, including what's known as tax increment financing. <laughs> I laughed out loud when I what's known as it's known as that because that's what it is. Sometimes it's better than the tribute. The tribute will write occasionally uh, the so-called tax increment financing program. What they're really saying, folks, is you're so dumb. You could not understand in a million years this TIF stuff. So it's like the, the, the so-called tax increment financing. Come on, Sun-Times. Public is smarter than that. All right, enough uh, that I'm, I'm going to move to a different topic completely, and I'm going to ask my distinguished guests to introduce themselves, uh, and then we will take the deep dive. Uh, so we'll start with distinguished guests whose first initial begins with T. Please introduce yourself. Hello, everyone. I'm Thayer Ahmad. I'm an emergency medicine physician in the south side of Chicago. I'm a board member for an international NGO called MedGlobal. I am also a Palestinian-American who was born and raised. I was born at the uh, infamous Cook County Hospital, and I've been in Chicago for most of my life. Um, and I have been to Gaza uh, and Palestine several times over the course uh, of, the, uh, of the last several years. Um, so happy to be on the show. Thank you for having me. All right. Very good. And uh, distinguished guests, first initial is Z. Please introduce yourself. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Zahir Sahlul. Uh, I'm... Uh, the president of MediGlobal, that's the medical charity that is based in Chicago that uh, imp tried to improve access to healthcare at the different disaster regions. Um, I've been in 40 plus medical missions. I'm a father of three. Uh, my wife is a community organizer um, and I'm a pulmonary and critical care specialist. Uh, so I take care of patients with lung diseases and, and the intensive care unit in two hospitals um, in Chicago, St. Anthony's in the southwest side and the Christ Advocate Medical Center. Uh, th gentlemen, thank you very much for coming on my show, my humble little podcast, uh, to help my listeners understand what's going on in Gaza, uh, the medical catastrophe uh, that's going on in uh, Gaza. As I continue my plea, uh, and I've been unsuccessful in this plea uh, for a ceasefire from the moment, from October 7th, from the moment of Hamas attack. That's been like a goal of this show. And uh, gentlemen, I apologize for my unsuccess at this, my lack of success at this. I'm just one little voice in the city of Chicago, but uh, I am trying. I also want to give a shout out to Joanna Klonsky, who introduced me to these two gentlemen. And so thank you, Joanna, for uh, making this show possible. Uh, there, let's start with you. You mentioned that you're Palestinian-American, uh, that your family's roots uh, are in this region. Uh, so um, why don't you give us just like, uh, God, there's so much I could go with this question, talk about your past, your family. Uh, and it's, Why don't you just talk about a little biography about yourself, how it is uh, that your family ended up in the Chicago area and uh, where your relatives in Gaza or uh, in the, the Middle East are. So take it away. Yeah. Uh, so I come from a family. Our last name is Ghazalna, which um, actually, you know, kind of means that we're originally from Gaza. Probably 150 or some years ago, we uh, went to a suburb of Jerusalem where most of my extended family is now, and they've been there their whole life. Um, back in the 80s, my father decided to come to the United States because a lot of Palestinians were coming to the United States and specifically Chicago. And there, in fact, is an area in Chicago in the Bridgeview area where if you were to pull up your Google Maps, you'll see that it's called Little Palestine. There's probably around 20,000 Palestinians who live here. 
Um, and so this is kind of the story that uh, that that begs the question, why did why did so many Palestinians decide to come to the United States? And essentially, obviously, since 1948, we refer to something called the Nakba, which means catastrophe in Arabic. And from that moment, when Palestinians were displaced from their lands, they've been trying to seek refuge in other parts of the world. And so there's a large Palestinian community in Chicago. There's also a massive Palestinian community in Brazil and in Puerto Rico, um, all across Europe, um, in different parts of Asia, uh, scattered throughout the Arab world. Um, most of my um, family is is in a suburb of Jerusalem that actually, after there was a construction of the wall that separates some of the West Bank from Jerusalem and uh, modern day Israel, um, we are in the now we're one of the suburbs that's on the outside of that wall. And so we're technically uh, called Area C, which refers to uh, Israeli military occupation as the administrator of that region. And so I've uh, been back and forth multiple times, uh, and uh, most recently in August, actually, I visited my late grandmother, who eventually passed away. Um, but, you know, we uh, we come from a long line of farmers, um, and so it's uh, it's interesting always to go back, especially coming from the West, especially in the metropolitan area like Chicago, where there are so many Palestinians. But you go back to our roots, and so many of us come from these small villages in Palestine, um, kind of on, uh, you know, olive tree farms and uh, kind of living that farmer simple life. And so um, I think, uh, you know, one of the things that always strikes me that I would love to just kind of put some context in is that, you know, this is a small part of the Middle East uh, when you're talking about Palestine and Israel. And uh, there are so many people and so many different faiths that kind of uh, hold this area sacred. Uh, when I was just in the old city of Jerusalem, you can walk by and you'll see Christians carrying a cross down the old uh, city. You'll see Orthodox Jews praying at the wall and you'll see a ton of Muslims making their way to Al-Aqsa Mosque. And so it's such an incredible place that I think we'll get into uh, pretty, pretty quickly here that has been surrounded by so much controversy and conflict. Um, and so that's just kind of a quick, uh, quick bio of how we got here and how so many other Palestinians got here. All right. Uh, and before we move on to the specifics of Gaza uh, and the medical catastrophe going on there, uh, Zahir, why don't you uh, sort of tell your background uh, and uh, how you came to this particular uh, issue? Go ahead. Um, I'm a Syrian American. So um, I finished my medical school in, uh, in, in Damascus. Um, in the late 80s, came to Chicago, uh, did my training at UIC in uh, medicine, then in, in, in pulmonary and critical care, been in private practice since then. Um, I got to know my wife here in Chicago. She's a son, uh, she's the daughter of uh, an engineer who's from Syria, and her mom is Canadian American with Scottish and Irish roots. Uh, so we represent the diversity of our city, my, my family, and um, I lived here throughout the last uh, 32 years in different suburbs. I lived in Bridgeview, the uh, little Palestine, for seven years. Got to know the Palestinian community, the descendant uh, that started maybe the first mosque in the Chicago area in back in 1956 um, on Kedzie and 63rd Street, I think, in, the, in that area. Uh, and now it has grown to be a big community. Um, and... Um, when the crisis started in my homeland in Syria, uh, in back in 2011, as part of the Arab Spring, which I'm sure that you, your audience are familiar with, uh, where people in the Middle East wanted 
to have uh, democratic reforms and, and, and dignity and freedom like we do. Um, uh, civil war started in, in Syria, and then I got involved in medical missions there uh, to help the refugees that were spread uh, throughout the Middle East and in Europe, and also to provide health care to the uh, victims of war in Syria. And then with time, uh, that uh, kind of mission grew to provide health care to other countries, um, whether it's in Ukraine or a migrant in, in Colombia or uh, Ecuador or south of the border or the victims of wars in, in Yemen and Sudan uh, or the victims of uh, genocide in um, the Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh. And uh, uh, the Gaza and, and, of course, the Palestinian territories are important uh, in the fact that this is the last probably occupied uh, areas in the world um, where, you, st- you know, uh, Gaza and the West Bank are under occup- military occupation by Israel. Uh, Gaza is um, an area that is very small, 140 square uh, miles, um, smaller than Chicago area, and has 2.2 million people um, who have one entrance and one exit. Um, and the, the skies and the, and the land and the, and the seas are controlled by um, the occupying power, Israel. According to international humanitarian laws in the United Nations, this is not me speaking. Um, and um, and we, we felt it's important to help uh, the uh, medical communities, healthcare workers in, 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 in Gaza uh, to uh, improve the quality of healthcare and access to healthcare because Gaza and, and the West Bank, but Gaza in particular, compared to the neighboring countries, have lower access to healthcare, uh, Gazans, uh, lower number of doctors and hospital beds and ICU beds compared to the uh, neighboring countries. Uh, higher mortality mortality rate for women who um, uh, deliver the maternal death uh, is higher and um, infant death. Um, and uh, and that's not right. Uh, and, and that's what our mission is to improve access to healthcare. And that, that, that's how I got involved in, in, in Gaza. All right. Uh, and uh, so, Thayer, why don't you explain a little bit more about Gaza, uh, piggybacking on uh, what Zahir's just said. Uh, he said 140 uh, square miles, I think is what I wrote down. I can barely read my writing. Uh, so a lot of a lot of people I know in Chicago are like, they were a little surprised uh, <laughs> at that there were more than one city. They, like, they thought of Gaza as a city. Do you follow what I'm saying? Uh, and so Gaza is like one place, like Bridgeview or Evanston. Uh, and so why don't you explain a little bit about the geography of Gaza uh, and the different cities in the area, and then, then we can get into uh, the specifics of what's happening there. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, it's pr- referred to as the as the Gaza Strip because it is a small strip of land, and I think I can see why people would get confused. Um, but it's this beautiful enclave right off of the Mediterranean. It's The coastline is all the Mediterranean. It's nestled right in between Egypt uh, to its south and to the north, uh, uh, Lebanon and, and Israel. And so it's uh, really this very tiny, tiny uh, piece of land. I mean, it's 25 miles long, uh, five miles wide. So, I mean, it's less than the length of a marathon. And uh, really, there's probably like five governance is the way that, you know, you that you should put it um, in terms of like population centers. Um, there's the north and then there is Gaza City, which is essentially their most populous city. It's where most of the people live. Half a million out of the 2.2 million people live in Gaza City. Um, there is uh, Rafah, which is all the way on the south. And that's the border town. 
And that's something that's really in the news because that's the border town between Egypt and Palestine and Gaza. And so kind of that's that's where uh, when, you know, Dr. Zahir talks about one way in, one way out right now, that's the that's a very tiny, tiny passage where people um, can get in and very small amount of humanitarian aid enters. Um, there's Khan Yunus and Dir al-Balah. Uh, so these are the places that are south of this like m- line that crosses the middle of Gaza. And so that's the area where they told everybody in the north, which I just mentioned, is where most of the people live. Um, they told them, hey, go south of this line to these areas, Khan Yunus and to Dir al-Balah and to Rafah. And so 85% of the people in Gaza, 2.2 million people, were moving on foot to the south uh, of Gaza. It's interesting because there's like this additional layer of uh, trauma and tragedy to to asking them to be displaced again. And that's because more than three quarters of the people in Gaza are descendants of refugees, people who are not originally from Gaza. They're from other parts. And during 1948, when uh, Israel declared its independence, there were you know, 750,000 Palestinians that were displaced and many of them went to Gaza. So a lot of the people that, you know, uh, are living in Gaza right now are from other parts of historic Palestine, uh, uh, Israeli cities now. Um, so it's a very, very small, very small area, very populous. And then the other thing that I think people would find interesting is that half of its population um, is under the age of 18. So it's a very young, very young place. And um, I think you know, it's been under a pretty brutal blockade since 2006, 2007. Um, and that's really when you start talking about getting things in and getting things out. That's where kind of uh, the, the the real tragedy and human suffering comes into context, because there is a brutal bombing campaign happening right now. But it's in the context of a siege that's gone on for almost two decades, where not a lot of things are coming in and not a lot of people are coming out. Uh, Zahir, would you like to add anything to that before I uh, go on with my questions? Yeah, I mean, p- people imagine uh, the Middle East that it's an area where people uh, are killing each other every day. And, uh, and there's a war definitely in Gaza. There's wars uh, in other places in, in the world also, um, in Ukraine and uh, and the other places. But also in the Middle East, there's uh, still civil war in Syria and, and Sudan and, and Yemen. Um, although it's not as bad as what's going on in Gaza. But Gaza also has beauty, which I would like to uh, put uh, maybe uh, uh, a focus on, uh, because it's not all before this war um, um, misery and suffering. So uh, Gaza has one of the best soils um, in the Middle East for strawberries. That's I learned in one of the medical missions. So we were invited by one of the physicians, um, um, in Al-Shifa Hospital to his farm. And he has a strawberry farm. And he educated me about the fact that they export strawberries to Europe because of the quality of strawberries. And also some of the best flowers uh, in the Middle East are grown in Gaza and exported to Europe also. Some of the old oldest churches in the world were established uh, in Gaza, which was bombed recently um, uh, by the Israeli army. Uh, and also old mosque, oldest mosques in the world uh, established in Gaza, also bombed um, by the Israeli military. Um, and you see diversity in Gaza. So if you move from north uh, in Beit Lahia and Jabalia and uh, um, and uh, other play, uh, villages in the north, uh, you pass by Gaza City, then you go to Deir al-Barah and Rafah and Khan Yunis, you will see the diversity of nature. How is it changing? 
becomes more like Egypt, which is closest to the border, and also in the slang of the people becomes different. Um, and as uh, Thayer mentioned, 70% of Gazans um, are descendant of refugees from the 1948 land, uh, which was prior to the establishment of the state of Israel, was all historic Palestine. Um, so one of my friends, Dr. Hussam Abu Safiya, who works in a small hospital, children's hospital in the north of Gaza, in a village called Beit Lahia. The hospital's name is Kamal Adwan. It's in the news now because it's surrounded by IDF that entered the hospital yesterday and, and confiscated everything and evacuated everyone. Um, so he's a descendant of a family from a village called Hamama, which is um, about 15 kilometers, um, well, 15 miles north of Gaza. So he can go to a tall building, he told me, in north um, west of Gaza, and he can see the ruins of the village of his ancestors that right now completely deserted. Um, there were 5,000 people there. Uh, they all um, uh, fled to um, to nowadays Gaza, and their descendant is about 60,000 people in Gaza. Uh, and they cannot go and, and visit their the ruins of their village, which, which predates the Israelis and the Arabs, uh, goes back to the Roman time. So and you speak with people, people are very hospitable, very welcoming. The cuisine is great. Um, the culture and the dance and the music is there. Uh, people actually have fun and go to parks and they go to the sea and they enjoy the life. Um, children are in the, roaming in the streets, uh, different than in Chicago, uh, because it's very safe outside of the war. And you see children in the uh, 11 p.m. in the middle of the night uh, playing in the street with their families and, and so forth. So it was nice uh, memories. I gained five pounds in my first mission because of the hospitality of the people and their generosity. So I want to make sure that people understand that it's not all bombs and sufferings in, in the Middle East or in Gaza. People are like us. They have aspiration. When you talk with with with, uh, with kids in the ground, what do you want to be in the future? They don't tell you I'm going to be um, a fighter. They will tell you that I'm going to be a doctor or an engineer. Um, or an architect, uh, or an artist. Um, and, and and that's what is lacking in this coverage of this crisis in the media, that we always look at it as as all pain and suffering and, and bombs and people who want to kill themselves or kill others, which is not the case. People enjoy life, actually. Uh, and on a totally uh, on a side, a tangent, uh, and I'm speaking of gross generalities and stereotypes right now, and I apologize for that. But when I meet, um, I meet Jewish Americans and I meet Amer Arab Americans, I'm like, I don't know why you guys are fighting so much in Israel. You're, you're cut from the same cloth. I'm just saying that right now. Uh, <laughs> I am just saying that right now. Uh, and and you're, neither one of you is perfect when you come settle in Chicago. Okay. So don't, <laughs> just both communities, some of the way you vote in the city of Chicago, man, I don't, I don't get. So, um, a lot of similarities uh, to your point, uh, as I hear. Uh, there's a vilification of people that goes on when we have conflicts like this. So it's important to understand we have a, a lot in common. All right. I am now going to uh, get to the heart of the matter. Uh, and I'll read a little uh, uh, story that was in today's Washington Post. I don't know if you, uh, either one of you uh, gentlemen saw this. It doesn't matter. I'm just going to read this to you. It's an interview with a British Palestinian doctor. Uh, Abu Sitta, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. I've never met the man before. Uh, and he spent 43 days tending to the wounded in Gaza City. 
before he left, exhausted and carrying a feeling of guilt that he could have done more. A reconstructed plastic surgeon in London, he arrived to volunteer with Doctors Without Borders in Gaza on October 9th in the window after the Hamas assault on Israel and before the Israeli invasion. As Israeli airstrikes were hitting Gaza City, hundreds of wounded were being brought to a hospitals where Abu Sita worked around the clock. The bombing seemed to come closer and closer. Everything I had that I had done in my life had led me to this point, and this is where I was meant to be, he said. Uh, all right. Um, he goes on to talk uh, at length about the immense suffering that's going on and his frustration and feeling of helplessness as a doctor uh, and his inability uh, to help people. And um, so uh, why don't we start uh, with you there and talk a little bit uh, about what uh, you know about, about the medical catastrophe that's going on in Gaza right now. Go ahead. I think uh, just to kind of put it in context, it's important to know about what some of the failures before any sort of siege and bombing take place, you know, and I think um, right before any of this started, so October 6th, there's uh, certain metrics that you look at. And so one of the things that you're you, just to kind of so people can understand and grasp this, but there's something called the availability of essential medicines. So at any given time, these essential medicines, things like insulin for diabetes or blood pressure medication for for somebody who has hypertension or any of these or antibiotics for common infections. These are called these, these essential medicines in Gaza, in their warehouse, in their repository. How much of that is available that's on this list? On October 6th, that number is 55%. Let's compare that to the West Bank, which is also Palestine. That number is 90%. And you compare that to Israel, that number is 100%. You compare that to America, the availability of essential medicines is 100%. The other thing that you that's really important to, to sort of take a look at is something that Dr. Zahed kind of alluded to and why MedGlobal was working in Gaza in the first place. There is higher maternal mortality there. There is higher infant mortality there. Moms and newborns are dying at a higher rate than the rest of the world. And they're dying at a higher rate than the neighbor next door in Israel. And so um, we're talking about two to three times higher rates here that need to be addressed. So this is all before sort of October 6th. So much of the people in Gaza depend on being referred medically somewhere else other than Gaza to get the care that they need. And I'm talking about sort of regular chemotherapy for cancer, uh, any sort of pediatric specialist for a kid. They are seeking the care outside of the Gaza Strip. And so part of the mandate of the organization is, hey, how can we kind of help them increase that capacity? So on, after October 7th, after Hamas has their attacks on, uh, on Israel, suddenly there you're cutting off water, electricity, food, and you're beginning a relentless bombing campaign. And what we're noticing with the bombing is that it's really attacking vital infrastructure, schools, uh, you're talking about homes, people are hitting the streets. And for any single physician, once you start noticing that people are fleeing and that the vital infrastructure is messed up and suddenly you don't have electricity, water, and the food is not being, is entering and diesel fuel that powers all of life in Gaza is cut off, you know that that's a public health disaster. And that's going to happen within hours. You know, you're talking about 48 hours, 72 hours, not, you know, 65 or 70 days where we're at now. So everybody's kind of sitting there really, really anxious about what's going to happen in the catastrophe unfolding. Now, as those injuries start to pile up, 
and the deaths and the casualties start to pile up, you know very quickly that the hospitals get overwhelmed. I mean, if you look were to take a snapshot of Gaza right now, you know that they have a certain amount of beds that they where they can host injured people. You know that they're over 500 percent capacity on that. Like they're five times over capacity. People are in the corners. People are on the floor. And you know that all of the, you know, whatever medicines they did have, you're using that up very quickly in the early weeks after any sort of war, any sort of bombing, any sort of conflict. So when we say, you know, medical catastrophe, I mean, that's the right word. It's absolutely catastrophic because in any direction you look, there is some sort of catastrophe unfolding, whether it's the water that's entering into the Gaza Strip. I'm sorry, I say this point and I'll, I'll have Dr. Zed chime in, but about water specifically, there's so much about how water is regulated in Palestine. But just to give everybody an example and to put it into context, before October 7th in Gaza, they were living off of around 85 liters of water per day. Uh, that's for cooking, for cleaning, for hygiene, for drinking, all of the above. Let's compare that to Israel next door, uh, uh, developed nation, you know, sophisticated. The average person in Israel is around 250 liters of water a day. Here in the United States, here in Chicago, all three of us use about 300 liters of water a day. Um, and the World Health Organization says for any human being in the world, it should be at 100 liters per day. So the people in Gaza before October 7th were on 88 liters per day. If you ask me what that number is today, they're on a liter and a half per day of water. And so it's like, it's really, really astronomical, the sort of suffering that people are going through. And I'll, I'll have Dr. Zahab chime in because I know he has a few things that he can share as well. Go ahead, doctor. Oh, thank you, Thayer. And um, I, mean, I, I want to mention a couple of points actually related to Ben's uh, comment about uh, too many things in common. First of all, about uh, the diversity that we have at uh, MidGlobal. Um, because we um, embraced diversity from the beginning. So the co-founder of MediGlobal is a pediatrician from Chicago, uh, Dr. John Kaler. Um, in, in our board of directors and volunteers, we have Jews, we have Christians, we have Hindus, we have people of other faith, we have Muslims. Um, some of the missions that we had to Gaza, we had Jewish American physicians and nurses. One of them, Jean Klein, uh, she's a she was very anxious uh, in before uh, before the first mission to Gaza, um, you know, because of what she heard about Gaza and stuff like that. Uh, but when she went into Gaza, she became a friend of the head nurse in Al Shifa Hospital, and they com- continued to exchange uh, notes. And then she uh, sponsored a program to help um, elderly um, Palestinians in Gaza through a mobile clinic. Um, so. You are right that there is too many things in common. And I think the uniting mission within MidGlobal um, attracts people from different faith backgrounds. The, the, the medical situation um, in Gaza, which, which Thayer expanded, I just want to put uh, certain things into perspective and um, also address the issue that we're not paying attention to, which is the impact of war on pa- patients with chronic diseases. So, um, So according to... United Nations, Ministry of Health in in Gaza, many other organizations, there's between 6,000 and 7,000 or maybe more because there's maybe 1,500 or 1,800 kids that are missing. Uh, They're assumed dead under the rubble. So between 6,000 to 8,000 children in Gaza that have been killed since the beginning of the crisis. That means about one out of 150 Palestinian children in Gaza have been killed. 
And this has, of course, you assume that children are innocent um, and they had nothing to do with what happened in October 7th, which we all condemned. Um, and that's the equivalent of half a million people, children in the United States being killed in a matter of six weeks. This is a lot of kids who were killed in Gaza and there's no excuse. Even the White House today, I think, mentioned that 50% of the bombs thrown on Gaza are quote-unquote dumb bombs. That mean they're not targeted bombs, not smart bombs. And one time, one of the reporters asked me, how come that there are many children being killed? And I mean, you know, I, I tried to maintain a straight face. And uh, I said, well, maybe because shrapnels and, and, and missiles, um, when they attack bodies, uh, kids don't have big muscle mass or skulls to protect their brain and their body and they bleed and they die easier than adults. And also when you, the, the walls of your house crumble on you, and if you're a child, you're more likely to die than adult uh, because, again, the, there's not big muscles and, and, and skulls and things like that. So that's an easy explanation. And also half of the population of, of Gaza are kids. But what, what that means that Many resources are diverted in the hospital, remaining hospital, which is 14 out of 36. According to the World Health Organization, only 14 out of 36 hospitals that were present before the war in Gaza are partially functioning, right? That means two-thirds of the healthcare system has stopped working completely. And we're not talking about the blockade of medical supplies, medications, uh, food, and, and clean water and fuel. We're talking about Hospitals now not being open. That means you are diverting the 46,000 injured in Gaza to much smaller spaces and with very minimal resources to treat them. So what happens to patients who have cancer? What happens to patients who have heart disease or COPD or asthma or hypertension or diabetes? What happens to a woman who wants to have a baby or C-sections? They will be ignored because the attention is diverted to patients who have Mass casualties. Um, one of my friends in, 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 in Chicago, he had a brother who used to have dialysis three times a week in Al-Shifa Hospital. And then because of the war and because of the closure of the hospital, he stopped having dialysis for two weeks. So he called me and he said, can you do anything through your organization to help him? I said, there's no way to get dialysis in the north because there's no access. Why doesn't he go to the south of Gaza, evacuate? Um, he said he's disabled um, and there's no means to get him to the south. Then after a few days, he said his family, I have good news, his family was able to transport him to the south and now he's getting one hour of dialysis a week. But his BUN, which is a measure of the kidney function, is still very high, 350. After two days, the guy died. So that hap he's, in, he's not in the news, right? Because he's not a victim of the missiles, but he's a victim of the war. And imagine how many thousands of people in Gaza, kids, women, elderly, patients with diabetes, patients with heart attack in the middle of the night, patients who will need append appendectomy for appendicitis, being ignored and dying because of the war. And we are not calculating these numbers as victims of war. Yeah. And this is happening in real time. I mean, uh, just a, a point on the pregnant women, there's 50,000 pregnant women in Gaza, 180 births per day. I mean, it's been 70 days of this war and that's happening every day. When they were famously targeting a Shifa hospital saying that this hospital needs to be evacuated, this is a hub. 
people were being told to walk for miles on foot to go to the south. And these are not me and you. This is not us walking on a, on a, on a day. These are people who are in the hospital for a reason, people who have been injured or maimed or disabled. And I remember famously that went viral on social media was this lady had given birth at 6 a.m given birth at 6 a.m. And they, she was in a wheelchair with her husband and her mother carrying the newborn baby. And they were walking on Salahuddin Road, this main road to head to the south of Gaza. The, the grandmother of this newborn was like, she hasn't even fed the baby yet. She has not even had the first feed. I mean, these people are affected right now every single day. Dr. Zaire talks about the dialysis person. Uh, they also talked about kids. I mean, these kids are out of school, obviously, for 70 days. But only 10% of kids have gotten their childhood vaccinations. I mean, there's already cases of measles spreading around, flu. So you can see like this is when he talks about being ignored or neglected, this is really the tragedy within the tragedy. It's like we know these effects are going to persist for a long time, but these are you know actual humans and it's happening right now as we're talking. Like they are dealing with these issues that, you know, we don't, we don't really get to hear about or read because it's not bombs and it's not uh, a ground invasion. All right. Uh, I'm going to get into uh, what needs to be done uh, from your perspectives as doctors, but I just have to follow up with something which is sort of a, um, a tangent. So I apologize to my listeners. Uh, Zahir, help us me understand and excuse my ignorance, the difference between a smart bomb and a dumb bomb. Go ahead. I'm going to cry here uh, or maybe laugh or at the same thing. Um, so when you, when you throw, I mean, uh, I lived the Syrian crisis. I worked in hospitals that were built underground because hospitals were targeted by the Assad regime, by Russia, uh, by Iran. Um, I recently came from Ukraine where the Russians have been targeting also civilian infrastructures with quote unquote smart bombs. But these smart bombs are actually dumb also because they don't only kill, um, military, um, uh, or quote-unquote terrorists, but they kill also children and women and elderly, people who had nothing to do uh, with, with, with the war or how the war started. The same thing um, in Gaza. When you throw a big, uh, very expensive bomb or missile uh, on an apartment building because you're targeting one or two people, most likely going to kill many other people who have nothing to do with these targets of bombing. I'm talking about the smart bombs. Now, the dumb bombs are, of course... Um, there is likelihood that if you're throwing it at certain building, it will actually um, bomb a few other buildings um, nearby or maybe uh, a building one mile away from the targeted building, which means many innocent people will also be killed. In my mind, uh, there is not much difference because many innocent people will be killed uh, regardless. Uh, but dumb bomb probably will kill more innocent people than smart bombs. I'm not really very expert, but that's my explanation. <laughs> but it, and it goes to this idea that, um, you know, there's no whether or not you're intentionally targeting civilians and these dumb bombs are unguided. And if you look at any sort of the precision bombing that's taken place, you can see um, that if you if you are a sophisticated military, there's a way where in an, in an apartment building, you can take out one of the floors where you have a target there versus this is more about inflicting decent amount of damage and destroying infrastructure. And yeah, if you have a target in the area, you drop a dumb bomb, great. But then you're also going to wreak havoc on all of the surrounding areas, like Dr. Zeh has said. So, I mean, for our for our government to do an assessment and to say half of the almost half of the bombs in Gaza are being dropped are these unguided, not precisional ones. I mean, then it's really tough to make an argument about taking every precaution to mm -hmm. sort of protect uh, civilian life and infrastructure. 
Well, uh, yeah, we'll move on. But uh, to me, it's just the utter absurdity of war. Uh, And uh, I was just an attempt to justify war or to say uh, that there's a larger intelligence governing the decisions that people who are waging war are making uh, to protect, quote unquote, innocent people. Uh, is a fallacy. We choose to believe that if we want to in any situation, in any war. Uh, and um, I've lived through this, gentlemen, I'm way older than both of you. I lived this in the United States with the Vietnam War, uh, which is way before either of your time. Uh, and just this notion that uh, good people only wage good wars is a fallacy. Uh, and then you you're old enough, both of you, to have lived through the uh, the wars that the United States initiated after 9-11, uh, which was dedicated to this uh, fallacy as well. It goes on throughout the world. Government. Just to kind of comment on that, uh, this is, again, a tangent, but, you know, the late historian Howard Zinn has uh, kind of comments, yeah, comments on uh, this idea of good or moral wars. And he talks about three things, and he really kind of talks about what you're talking about in, in the sense that, you know, war inherently is this really kind of immoral and evil thing. And this notion that there's such a thing as a good or moral war, he takes you through the most, you know, the most moral wars, quote unquote, and how, you know, really tragic and, and unbearable things happen. Yeah, absolutely. And everybody, this is universal. People tell themselves all kinds of comforting things to assure the, you know, so they don't have to think about the horrors that are going on in the world. Uh, and uh, just when, uh, as I hear when you said that thing about dumb bombs and smart bombs, I just had a riff on it a little bit. All right. Uh, gentlemen, I'm going to ask each of you uh, to tell me what you think should be done now. Uh, you've laid out uh, the crisis. Uh, and. Um, so we'll start uh, with you, uh, Thera. What should be done right now? Uh, go ahead. You know, I, uh, I'll, I'll tell you this. There's total consensus in re- when, when you talk about the humanitarian community here in regards to what needs to be done. I mean, there's no, there are every single organization you can think of, all of the famous ones, all of the small ones, Save the Children, Oxfam, the United Nations, the World Health Organization, MedGlobal. All of these organizations are saying the same thing about what needs to be done. The first thing is kind of what you talked about in the beginning is ceasefire. Um, there just needs to be a stop, like a total stop. There should be no bombs being dropped. There should be no planes overhead. Stop everything. Make sure that there is a ceasefire. That's like priority number one. And right along with that is allowing desperately needed humanitarian aid to enter into the Gaza Strip. You cannot even move to the next point. You cannot talk about any sort of diplomatic or political solution until you address both of those things immediately. And of course, that comes with releasing all of the hostages. I mean, that's those are the things that you talk about right now needs to happen. Stop the bombs, release the hostages, let water, food, electricity resume, let uh, let it all go in. And so I think that needs to happen uh, Number one, and I'll I want to I want to hear Dr. Zeha's thoughts on this, but I just want to comment just a little bit about, you know, the food entering. I mean, Oxfam said they're concerned that starvation is being used as a weapon. But during the pause, that one week pause, the World Food Program did this rapid assessment. They're asking a bunch of Gazans about food and hunger. And what they found was that nine out of 10 people in northern Gaza, nine out of 10 people had gone 
at least 24 hours on multiple days, at least 10 days without having a single meal. And what adults were doing is they were skipping meals so that the kids could eat and that they were doing these unconventional practices where it's like, you know, uh, uncooked eggplant. They would they would eat that or they would try to find something. They were cooking it. They would they would burn waste to try to kind of heat the food up. And so how can you talk about what the next what the next steps are until you make sure those people have access to food, to water, to make sure that there's no bombs dropping overhead, um, you know, there's a reason the UN said that there's no place safe in Gaza. It's because it's true. There is no safe place that's in Gaza. We can talk about going to this safe area or that safe area. And the reality on the ground begs to differ. I mean, uh, refugee camps, uh, UN schools, hospitals have all been targeted, have all been struck and have all had massive amounts of casualties. And people are just running around looking for a safe spot. Um, and so, you know, I think that's for me, like that's ob the obvious priority about what needs to happen. And I'll, I'll let Dr. Zahid jump in here. Go ahead. I mean, I, I totally agree with uh, with uh, Thayer. And, and, and when you ask the people who are uh, at the receiving end of these bombs, what would you like to happen? They will tell you, stop the bombs uh, raining from the uh, from the skies. And I, I think uh, we are accountable to the people that we serve uh, in, in any place. And uh, we, we asked the same question to Ukrainian and they said the same thing. Uh, uh, so I think uh, we need ceasefire uh, right now and sustain ceasefire. Um, accompanied by a Marshall Plan to rebuild uh, Gaza because 50% uh, or 60% of the apartments have been destroyed with the smart and the bomb bombs. Um, so that means people, even if the hostility stopped right now, won't have places to live and, and won't have hospitals to have access to health care or schools. 40% uh, of the schools have been destroyed for some reason, which I cannot understand. Um, so um, maybe the aim of all of this campaign is to push the Palestinians in Gaza to Egypt to to create another refugee crisis in the Middle East, which is not good for all of us. What what we've learned in the previous crises, Ben, and I'm sure that uh, you're wiser than me in this, that what happens in other places of the world does not stay in other places of the world. It will hit us here later on at one point. It will undermine our national interest. I really believe that what's happening right now in Gaza undermines our national interest as a country. Um, and we lost many, a lot, a lot of friends uh, in the region because of this and in the world. And if we care about the global South, we have to care about Palestinians in Gaza and about our status in the world. I think there should be more discussions like this discussion, Ben, in our media. Frank discussion, not only sound bites, uh, that actually address the issues from humanitarian perspective not from political perspective, um, and also have people from both sides agreeing on certain things. Where's the voice of our faith leaders in Chicago? Um, I, I mean, I remember back in Bosnia, during the Bosnian war and Darfur genocide, that we have many faith leaders in the United States speaking out about what's happening to the Bosnians, what's happening to the uh, Sudanese in Darfur. I don't, I don't hear the voices of faith leaders in the United States about this crisis that will may destabilize the whole region and affect all of us, that you had 7,000 children being killed. W where are the priests? I'm not talking about um, one faith communities. Where are the uh, rabbis? Where the, uh, are the imams? Um, they're not there um, for some reason. So people have to discuss these issues. It's affecting a lot of innocent people. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, including here in Chicago. Uh, so 
That, 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 that's, I think, what we need to do besides the ceasefire. I, uh, you know, I try to stay away from uh, the political uh, discussion at this point. Uh, so here, and I'll tell you why. Uh, it, I've learned this from experience. A lot of issues, but this, uh, this one in particular. Passions get inflamed. People stop listening. Uh, people start lecturing. Uh, ancient grudges are brought up. Uh, there's horror on both sides, and it gets thrown at you selectively. Uh, and so I feel it undercuts what I think is the most important thing right now, which is stop the bombing. Everything that you gentlemen have said, all this crisis is contingent on the bombing campaign and the military campaign being waged. So it, we cannot address this humanitarian crisis until we stop the bombing. And I know my show is just a little, little voice, as I hear, in, in, a, giant, in a giant world. But I don't want to contribute to that other conversation where people are screaming at each other, not listening to each other, pounding their chests. You get what I'm saying? Just stop the bombing and then bring in the politicians. God help us all. Uh, and uh, that's, that's how I view it. And I, I, I hear what you're saying about the, uh, the ramifications that will happen throughout the world for this. I almost feel like, God, that's like collateral issues. <laughs> that are different you know what i'm saying like what's happening on gaza is the real problem but yeah hey chicago you bet this could affect you because it could be palestinian refugees coming to your city like we have you know people coming from venezuela we haven't done a very good job uh doctors on that issue in the city of chicago but i won't bore you with that recitation for today before i let you gentlemen go uh, is there any last thing either one of you wants to say uh sort of in conclusion yeah, I mean, one thing I'll say is, um, and, and this is kind of, you're talking to an ER doctor and an ICU doctor, and I think probably, uh, you know, the way we look at things um, can, I hope, help people understand the situation a little better, but specifically kind of, you know, the horrors on both sides sort of thing. I mean, I think when it comes to us in the medical community, in the humanitarian relief community, and the just kind of people who are interested in humanity and dignity for all, um, there is no both sides because the horror is experienced the same. The horror has the same effect on all of these human beings. And so, you know, for me, I, I, that's something that I wish I can challenge when you talk about these conversations. It's so true. It gets so tense. It gets so loud. People are very, very angry. They don't want to listen to each other. And it's just very simple. We're all, we all bleed the same way. We all hurt the same way and we cry the same way. And so I think that's, that's kind of the, if you can make that a priority right now, just like you said, once the bombs stop dropping and the humanitarian crisis is addressed, then let the politicians add it. Let them figure out whatever the solution is. And I just, you know, the, the one thing I wanted to end with, it, just to let people know that, you know, uh, there's all this talk about, hey, if we get rid of this or we get rid of that, then we can have peace. But, you know, there are around 25,000 kids in Gaza right now who have lost at least one parent, mm. you know, and, and there are thousands, you know, we're talking about 40, 50,000 people who have been injured, maimed, disabled, who are going to live with the scars of this conflict for the rest of their lives. And, um, you know, there are 
the, we, there's all these viral videos that are going around in our communities about the grandfather who is saving the earring of his granddaughter who's been killed, um, putting it in his pocket. There is the mom that's running to the hospital after the hospital mom looking for her curly haired son, telling, have you seen him? He has curly hair. He has curly red hair. And so, you know, that's what I want people to think about when they see something about Gaza is to think about those people, because you can relate and empathize with that person very easily. You don't care what religion, you don't care what the color of their skin is, you don't even care what language they speak. You very easily empathize with that person. And so I would just ask people to think like that. And I think, you know, maybe we can get closer to some to some peace that way. Very good. Um, all right, gentlemen, thank you very much. I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, and uh, I invite you back anytime uh, to talk about this. I mean, I hope there's no need to have you back to talk about this because I hope... Uh, you know, uh, sanity prevails. Uh, but my gut level feeling is that, um, this is going to go on for a while. So, uh, we'll probably, can, can I so say, thank you very can much. I say, go ahead. I think mm-hmm. wars have power, uh, and let's not underestimate the power of, uh, this conversation. Uh, we had a conversation with the Chicago Sun Times, uh, editorial board uh, a few days ago. And after the conversation, they actually called for a ceasefire. Um, we had um, a Jewish American philanthropist. He called me a few weeks ago and he said that he wanted to donate $100,000 to Gaza. So our mission is unifying. We care about the people, the innocent people everywhere. And we, uh, we try to be morally consistent. Um, and uh, we hope for the best for everyone during this holiday season. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah to everyone who celebrate the holidays. And we wish everything peace for the world. Yeah, sometimes it come with that. That was beautifully said. Sometimes they come with that editorial. Shout out Ramana Hussein. I believe she was the one who wrote it. All right, gentlemen, thank you very much. Uh, I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Mm-hmm.